This conversation with Peter Bullen is one of my favorite podcasts I've ever done. Today, we're talking about Joseph Campbell's hero's journey and how we can utilize that as a guide as we look at our lives and move through our lives and maybe find places where we're stuck or we could use a little help. Uh, so we're going to utilize a lot of pop culture references and a lot of the stories that are out there right now that you might have you know, seen in a movie theater or read in a book. Um, but we're using those as metaphors to help us to kind of understand where we're at in our lives. Love this conversation. Love Peter's insight. Fantastic human. Really excited for today's talk. Hope you get something out of it. See you on the other side. All right, welcome back to the show. Uh, I am excited and overjoyed to talk with a uh, newer friend of mine. Uh, Mr. Peter Boland is back on the show. So I found Peter, just a quick little backstory on Peter and, and uh, how I found him. Uh, I've been deepening my uh, my understanding of religious texts and different knowledge bases. Um, and uh, through that journey, it kind of found uh, Peter Boland on, uh, on YouTube and found uh, the, the amazing channel that he has, all the different information multiple uh, uh, series videos on things like the Dow, um, the hero's journey, which we'll talk about. So in-depth uh, hero's journey information, uh, things about like the Bhagavad Gita, philosophy in general, like religious approach, how to, how to approach religion. I mean, just so many beautiful videos from, you know, 50 seconds to, you know, 30 minutes, you know, there's music in there. There's all kinds of stuff, right? It's just a, it's a beautiful channel. I've personally uh, enjoyed it uh, many, many times. I uh, was listening to all of your hero's journey information as I readied myself for this uh, podcast. Um, and so it's just a wealth of information. So I, I highly recommend if you're looking to deepen your understanding or even just like just scratch the surface because the information that you have is very in-depth, but it's also very approachable. And that's what brought me to it. That's what led me to it is like I love to hear about things, but I don't like when people talk over my head and I have to kind of grasp for things. And I'm like, okay, I kind of get this concept, kind of not. You break it down. You got a beautiful way of doing it. And one of the reasons why I love having you on this show. And so one more quick thing about Peter. Uh, so if you want to learn more about Peter, he is a philosophies and humanities professor out at uh, Southwestern College and, uh, and just does beautiful speaking engagements, concerts, all kinds of stuff, right? So if you want to be entertained and informed, go check out this man, right? He's got a lot of good stuff for you. So Peter, thanks for, thanks for coming back, man. I appreciate you having or coming back on here. Oh, Adam, it's a thrill. And, and wow, what an intro. I appreciate that. You know, and I just want to pick up on one thing you said that it's, it's, it's a real passion of mine to, to uh, explore all these great wisdom traditions and, and find the way that they connect with our lives. And, and I, I learned something really early on from the best teachers that I had, which is you have to start where students are, you have to start where people are. And I just don't connect with, with great with with teachers or speakers or you know YouTube guys or whatever, who who kind of kind of talk down from the mountain and and you know they just sort of back the dump truck up and 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 do 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 they just like pour out all this stuff and like what am I supposed to do with it What does it have to do with me And so to me the best teachers always start where I am and and then scaffold you know they kind of build. Okay, we'll start there. Like, what's an issue you're facing, and and what do some of the great world's wisdom traditions have to kind of offer about the situation you're in, and um, help us heal, help yeah. us kind of come out of our dysfunction. And I maybe I shared this last time I was on, but it seems to me that the the connective tissue between all the world's religions and philosophies and 
psychological therapeutical modalities is is they're all healing modalities they all began anyway as a way to help us alleviate our suffering and come out of ignorance and into clarity and so in that sense it's all philosophy it's all the love of wisdom whether it's sufi dancing or taoist poetry or jungian depth analysis yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. for me i just dig it all because it's kind of all helping me be less effed up in the head right right and i think you know just to just a tangent off that real quick you know i think i had a person on recently that that is a nlp a neurolinguistic programmer and uh, and she works with people with uh, neuro neurodivergence and different types of abilities and what we would call disabilities. And yeah. one of the things that we talked about is, you know, the, the best uh, success that she has working with these type of kids is to have to have her meet them where they are and to slowly start to understand that. And so instead of this like, hey, I'm up here, meet me up here, find your stairway, find your escalator, it doesn't matter, but get up to my level. It's like, no, 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 let's all start at a, at a reasonable, understandable level, and then we'll build information together. You know, I'll share what I have that might build yours, and through that, you're going to share what you have that'll build mine, right? And that's how we find that cohesiveness instead of like, just come find me. No, 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 let's find each other, and then we'll, we'll live and, together. And maybe there are no levels. Maybe that's the wrong imagery, right, mm. that there's higher and lower. Maybe there's just effective communication and ineffective communication. Love that. <laughs> Can you connect? And and so that drives all the videos I make. And I guess I kind of learned that from being a community college professor, you know, and most of the students that pass through my world religions and ethics and world mythology and Asian philosophy classes are not philosophy majors. You know, they're they're maybe even reluctantly in the room to get some units for their <laughs> education plan. So uh, you know, that drove me to like always have the question in the center of every single session mm. who cares why why are we doing this what does this have to do with me you know that's that's always a question i have in my own mind too Definitely. so that's what, I'm always looking for the relevance there you go man and i think that's kind of what drove us towards this question you know as we had our interview last time uh yeah. beautiful interview it was I still like fondly look back at our notes and i listened to it a few times like i just i've got a lot of good feedback from that interview and, uh, and towards the end of that, we really kind of stumbled onto this idea of how we, not, not, not the idea, but the conversation uh, talking point about how we all live our own hero's journey. And we're all part of our own journey through life. And we can get stuck in some of those spaces. And to understand what that blueprint might look like can help you understand where those sticking points are. So you can kind of put that energy towards how to get past that sticking point. And that, I mean, that was a, that was a great concept. But the other concept that really has stuck with me quite a bit is not only are you living your own hero's journey, but you're also supporting somebody else in other ways through their hero's journey. And using Lord of the Rings as our reference point from last time, are you the Sam Wise to somebody's Frodo or are you the Sauron, right? Like how, are, <laughs> how supportive are you or how diminishing are you to somebody's journey? And do you even realize it? You know, and I think that's where that's, that, that point for me got. And I started thinking about like the people in my life, from my fiance to my kids, to the people like that, the, the yoga uh, students that I help out, the energy uh, people that I help out. And what supportive role am I playing? Or am I even playing a supportive role? You know, and so I think that kind of takes us out of this, this is my life and saying like, okay, so yes, this is my life and I'm walking my own hero's path, but maybe part of my hero's path is to assist somebody else on their hero's path. 
Yeah, no, that's so good. You know, the, when you when you hear the word hero in our sort of pop culture, you think of Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. You think of people that go to the gym a lot in spandex suits flying through the air and blowing shit up. Right. You know, <laughs> and, and, and that's all super fun. And those are great stories and narratives, of course. But um, when we're talking about the hero's journey in this context, there's something much deeper and more ancient going on and more personal going on. And that line from Campbell that each of us is the hero of our own lives is the connective point that's why we connect with these stories so much and just another facet of the fellowship piece that you just brought up you know in this union sense which is really where all this stuff comes from campbell is joseph campbell's really coming out of that carl jung archetype perspective and we'll maybe get it more into all of that but um the key piece is is that these stories um are rising up out of the collective unconscious kind of a hidden place and they're manifesting through all of us as us and so the fellowship one of the really cool things i really love about the fellowship piece you mentioned lord of the rings classic example this this you know literally the fellowship of the ring or think of the wizard of oz you know the lion and the tin man and the scarecrow and dorothy and so there's always this sort of like gang that's going through some stuff um uh, scooby-doo and just whatever there's always a cluster of people and one way of sort of approaching that that motif in so many of our favorite stories is that each member of the fellowship can be seen several ways. One, the way you framed it, which is the thinking of the people in my life as a fellowship. And am I helping or am I hindering? But there's a kind of another interesting way to look at it, which is that each member of the fellowship is an aspect of my own psyche. Mm. And, and so who is the ruthless mercenary in me? You know, the Han Solo, Mm. uh, Rick in Casablanca, the Humphrey Bogart character. Who is the guy that's just in it for the money? It's like, I don't care about your stupid cause. I'm just here to get paid. Uh There's always that guy, right? It's a trope, right? In a lot of fellowships, who, of course, you can count on it, is eventually uh, transformed. Yes through the fellowship with the others who are working not for that lower chakra energy energy of like all you know i me and mine and i'm gonna get mine and it's all about consumption and conquering they they just i suppose through proximity are kind of awakened to hey there's a bigger prize here my humanity yes service and it's so wonderful to watch a character like han solo or name your your typical character who goes through that and i got that guy in me i totally you know am i going to get paid you know um my youtube followers you know how many do i have and all that kind of ambition stuff and to not demonize that and say must destroy the ego but to say let's integrate our shadowy aspects of ourselves into well integration means to become one and so let's put all those energies in alignment and that's a really powerful again pedagogical or teaching lesson about the hero's journey not to see those sort of shadowy parts of ourselves as the enemy but to figure out how they can all come together that's that was one of the things i think in your first or second video of the, the the series that you have on the hero's journey on your YouTube channel that really kind of stuck with me, you know, it was one of those like proliferary, like auxiliary kind of thoughts that was like, yeah, that yeah. makes sense, but it wasn't like on the forefront. 
But when you started talking about that, that really kind of hit me because, um, you know, especially with the shadow side you just talked about, you know, if we're shadowy, you know, how good is Sam going to be if all Sam can do is want to say, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? The how can I help is the wounded male in a different way. You know, they're, the wounded male can show up as the aggressor, can be the do as I say, I am the, I am the king, I am the person, right? I do, I'm the oligarchy kind of thing. <clears throat> but it can also show up as that wounded male of like, I just want to help. How can I help? What can I do? The indecisive, just the, the helper, right? And so in that energy isn't bad energy unless that's all that's there, right? If you're always going around trying to put out everybody else's fires, you're never going to tend to your own fire. You know, and uh-huh. so there, there is those aspects of, you know, like, yes, I do need to be the asshole sometimes, but do I need to lead with that? No, man, that just, that needs to be a tool in the toolbox, right? Just like the helper is a tool in the toolbox. I can't go around helping everybody because then I'm going to lose all the energy in myself and not be able to replenish myself. So it is, it's at that balance, you know, is not only of, of balancing the people in your life that support you in some kind of way, but also balancing yourself to know when, um, I think the Navy SEALs uh, uh, call it the uh, the electing of the captain, right? You have all these all those archetypes that are inside of you, and the captain is the one that discerns which one steps up, right? So right now, I need the warrior, right? We're about to go into battle. I'm about to go, you know, black ops this thing. So I need the warrior to pop up, and we're going to go do some things. But when that's done... You might need the priestess to come back in and show you some love, right? Yeah. And just embrace that love and not... Don't bring that guy home. Right? Exactly. Don't bring that guy home, you know? And so, you know, but it is, it, it's it's understanding that these these parts play a role in our lives for a reason. They just can't yeah. run the ship, right? And that's, that's where our discernment kind of comes in to figure out who's leading this charge, who's supporting the charge. And then if you need to switch ranks, all of a sudden, it's like, okay, these people are here. These personalities are there for you if you need them. But taking the opportunity to understand them. And so you can understand the energy and the power that they hold so they don't hold that power over you. Right to not identify with any of the roles and to remember that there's a center underneath all of those facades and all of those tasks and actions. There's the stillness in the midst of that action. You know, when you think of Lord of the Rings um, and when the fellowship sort of distills down to its essential triad, Frodo, Sam, and Gollum, Mm -hmm. and they're kind of going through the, the worst part of the journey into Mordor. And you're right. It's so fascinating. Sam could have never made it on his own. I mean, we gravitate toward him because he's such a charming, loyal, loving, supportive, strong feature uh, figure who's essential. I mean, at the very end of the story, he's literally carrying Frodo up the mountain. You know, I can't carry this ring for you, but I can carry you. Yeah. And I bust out crying every time I right. do that. <laughs> and, and 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 then guess what? There's that piece of crap, Mollum, Gollum, who is has been the enemy and and hated by Sam, viciously hated by Sam, and justifiably so. He's trying to kill him half the time. Um, but it turns out in Tolkien's masterful storytelling that uh, guess what? You know, it turns out that Gollum is an absolutely indispensable figure his actions figure into the success of the whole thing and they couldn't have got there without him either and and so again to not get lost in in fantasy lit or film or tolkien or anything but to bring that back to how do great storytellers tell these stories in such compelling ways that we are absolutely 
transfixed i am anyway on lord of the rings and then i come back and i said why is that story so powerful for me well maybe there are unconscious signals being sent about again my inner fellowship my you know my my own forays into depravity because mm -hmm. remember what made Gollum Gollum was his absolute obsession and greed with that ring yeah. he used to be a hobbit right when, and we finally see that backstory in the last film and and he his obsession with his I don't know if you want to use the word sin or his addiction or whatever his his un, his his irrational obsession with the ring and power and you know, everything that it means it literally dehopified him or dehumanized him he, right. he he lost his soul right he went over to the dark side and he becomes this rail this who can only live in the shadows i mean it's a heavy-handed image right underneath all that is this broken person and 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 whether you're christian or not you know you kind of have to acknowledge tolkien's deep commitment to his roman catholic faith and his commitment to the idea that no one is beyond redemption Right. And that and 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 Frodo is that sort of Christ-like figure who always somehow sees the good in Gollum, even though there isn't any to be seen. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 Sam's the more reactive guy. He's like, you know, screw that guy. We need to just kill him. <laughs> and Frodo's like, hold on, hold on. We need to, you know, we don't we we need him. He's okay. And so I that just breaks my heart, you know, that that the portrait of wisdom there is that Frodo figure who in the end of the film is is really a tragic figure who, again, in Tolkien's Christian narrative, um, who gave his life to yeah. save the world and and didn't he's the one hobbit that didn't get to go home. Right, yeah. Yeah, I didn't get the return. <laughs> Did not. Well, gave be all. well, before we move on, let's uh, let's kind of like talk about what the hero's journey is. Let lay out the, yeah. uh, the 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 basic blueprint, right? And one of the things you cover beautifully in your in your series is that yes, there are seventeen steps to this, but do we always go through all seventeen? Probably not. You know, there's maybe some that we maybe spend more time in, some that we might skip over. But there's three main overarching kind of categories that you have, right? So you have the uh, the call to adventure or your departure, right? The separation from the life that you've known, the the chance that you're taking. Um, you have the initiation, which is phase two, and that's kind of when you start to find the strength that you never knew you had. You get the people around you that can help support you, um, and then the third phase is after you've accomplish said task, it's now the task of returning home with all of the information, the experience. How do I go back to this life that I've lived after seeing all this and, you know, killing all these things and becoming this person that I never knew I could be? How do I integrate this back into my life? And, uh, and to me, that's, that's probably one of the hardest steps is that third phase. And to the point that you make in your series, that's the one that a lot of times we leave out in the big stories that we see on TV or movies is how does Han Solo come back and become Han Solo back into his life again outside of the, you know, the, the, the mercenary that he was, you know, how does Princess Leia come back and integrate not being a princess or being a princess or, you know, now knowing she has a brother or not, you know, and now in love with, Han, you know, all this stuff. How does this go back into life? How do we go back to like waking up in the morning, making coffee and like going about our days? Right. And I think yeah. that's one of those hard parts because we're so excited about this new thing that we just did and this new person we just found that we never think I can go back and just punch a clock again or teach a yoga class or record a podcast. You know, <laughs> it's like, no, I've seen too much. I've seen too much now. Yeah. 
great title uh, of a book by Jack Corn Cornfield, the American Buddhist teacher. It's called After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. <laughs> right. You know, and 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 so yes, the hero's journey is Joseph Campbell's famous um typology of of world literature, world mythology. It, the hero's tale is a tale that is found in all cultures and all centuries and all traditions and all religions and all bodies of literature. He identifies this from his deep immersion in the in the mythology and storytelling of the world. And then he brings his fascination, he being Joseph Gamble, he brings his fascination with Carl Jung uh, and Jungian psychology to the analysis of these stories. And that's where the word archetype comes from. So in Jungian terms, an archetype is a universal idea that that you find all over the world in cultures that didn't even have any connection with each other. So one of those archetypes is uh, Jung calls the supreme being mm. archetype, that there's this idea in all cultures that there's a hidden reality um, hidden from us by the surface reality. And that hidden reality is, in fact, superior to and the source of the surface reality, the seen world. And, and that's just an idea that you find everywhere. Yeah. Whether that idea is called God or or just, you know, Tao or whatever. And, and so there are, uh, Jung catalogs a number of these archetypal ideas. And one of them is the idea of, of the narrative structure called The Hero's Journey. So this is a story Campbell felt compelled to write about. It's his first book, 1947 or something like that. And it's it's like you said, it's those three major stages. The hero leaves home, then they go through this initiation and all these ordeals, and then they get the prize. And then thirdly, they then have to face a new challenge, like how to bring that reward back to the world, the world that won't recognize the goodness of the prize because they haven't gone on the journey. Hmm. And, and so there's something haunting about that last third phase, as you uh, as you say. And so, yeah, there, there are all these different um, stages to it. But what we have to always kind of return to is these stories are our story. They are um, symbolic metaphors for our own psychological maturation process you know we of, of, of us having to leave the nest and go out into the world and face ordeals and monsters and death and resurrection and and then hopefully achieve the boon or the prize whether that's categorized as you know enlightenment or some kind of wisdom or the holy grail and then try to bring that home and we get lots of help along the way so that's the wonder and and, and madness of the hero's journey yeah, it's so beautiful that, you know, when I first started learning about the hero's journey, I always expected it to be something grandiose, you know, this big thing, like it's going to be a big moment, you know, like, because we see, again, we, the reference points we have are stories, movies, television shows, yeah. and they're usually dramatic because they have to be, you know, they got to they gotta get ratings, but nobody's watching my movie, right? Nobody's watching my life as a show. And, you know, getting up and going to school in the morning could be part of that hero's journey for you, right? Getting up and finding a new job, going, having the courage to become a parent is one of the biggest hero's journeys I never thought I'd be on in my life. You know, so they can be mundane little things that you don't even think about that can be the, the impetus of your hero's journey, or it can be something big like, you know, somebody getting cancer in your family, you know, and that could be anything in between. So 
I think one of the things that, one of the quotes that I've read that, that really helps me understand, you know, one of those, maybe those first little pings of, is this part of my journey or is this one of those, those, those tipping points to start the journey? And it's uh, the, rest, the restlessness that rises up when you uh, realize that it just isn't enough anymore. Like this life just isn't enough anymore. There's, there's something in there, right? And there's usually like this deep feeling that maybe wells up inside, you know, and it could be, like I said, it could be this big spiritual thing that you go on, or it can be, you know, your desire to change jobs, right? Your desire to start a relationship in some kind of way. Um, and so before we move on, the, one of the things that I really loved about how you started your series was just making it very clear, this is all gender neutral. Like, yes, this was written in the forties. So you'll hear a lot of he and heroes and, but this is heroin. This is he, she, they, them, him, her, like this is everybody, right? This isn't just masculine male representing humans. This is every single human in this world will go through their own hero's journey. If you're open yeah. enough to understand and to, to witness it. I think that's the best way to approach this campbell's writing in the in the mid 20th century and he's immersed in medieval european literature and even much older indian and east asian mythology and so uh it's no secret that the planet is has been dominated by patriarchal consciousness for centuries and so a lot of the figures in these classic heroes tales are male and um so that ends up being uh, a focus and women's stories and women's experiences, not to mention non-binary and all the rest, are so completely marginalized that they're generally absent. Um, and, and so there's no reason, though, that we can't tell those stories again. And it's happening thank God, all around us. And, you know, um, when my students write Heroes Journey papers, it's mostly... Mulan and Moana. All right, <laughs> you, know, on. you know, and well, uh, let me stick a footnote in here about Disney. Um, you know, back when they were shooting the first Lion King movie, um, kind of an, like an intern. I read a whole article about this. I don't have any of the details in front of me, but an intern had just read Joseph Campbell, uh, the hero with a thousand faces, and he wrote a memo to the rest of his animation team as they were starting to work on the first Lion King film. And he's like, hey, here's these key stages from the hero's journey. We should think about working this in. That memo kind of caught fire in Disney, and it got all the way up to Michael Eisner, who was the CEO at the time. He published the memo to the entire company and said, this is how we're going to write stories from now on. Right. And so the script for The Lion King was reworked. And every single Disney movie since then, uh, Moana is a particularly great one that is note perfect on almost all 17 stages of Campbell's analysis of the hero's journey because it just freaking works. It, mm. it it works as a soul-stirring story for just the reason that you articulated that. You know, we recognize that, especially that early stage where the where our would-be hero is being called, right? That first of the 17 is the call to adventure. And that call often you know, sure, Moses gets the burning bush and God's saying, you know, I'm sending you on a journey, right? right. Uh, Dorothy gets gets uh, the tornado and knocked on the head and so on. And her general restlessness as she sings somewhere over the rainbow, you know, that longing to not be here anymore. Mm. <laughs> it's not that here is necessarily horrific, but there's something better, right? So it's that longing and the call to adventure, I think, um, might not be a burning bush for most of us. It's just, as you said, it's that 
general kind of non-specific anxiety, restlessness, alienation. It's like I don't know where I need to go, but I can't stay here. Right. And and you know, again on the shadow side, you want to make sure you're not just running, running, running away from everything your whole life. That's not a hero's journey. <laughs> but that willingness to say what is my soul asking me for and even though I'm scared to go, I feel, you know, the compelling pull is stronger than my fear. That's the that's where all heroes journeys begin. Yeah. And I think that, you know, for me that's one of the ones that that's really uh, you know, kind of hard because we, I think th- there's a lot of that with that, the intuition drives that, you know, that, that where's my intuition p- pushing me, pulling me, where am I feeling that? And, you know, for, you know, a child that grew up in the eighties and nineties, nobody talked about intuition, you know, it, besides, you know, listen to your gut. And so, you know, from a, from a culture that's kind of starved from listening to their bodies, listening to their intuitions, a lot of those first steps, because, you know, a lot of the clients that I come in, again, now that I have this, this blueprint to lay over a lot of the information that I have, a lot of the clients that I come in are scared of the call to adventure because they don't understand what that is because it doesn't fit in that Western style box that we've given everybody. Go to school for at least 12 years, maybe 30 if you're going to be something with an alphabet after your name, right? You have to, you know, get a career, start a family of some sort, you know, have this path that you're on. And so when you have the call to adventure, but you've already put yourself into this box that seemingly the the majority of the, the the Western world lives in, that call to adventure a lot of times is outside of that box. And so for me, when I'm when I'm looking at this and, and again working with my clients, but also looking at myself, that call to adventure and the refusal are the hardest steps for me to get past because or in the past at least, because it didn't fit in the box that I was given, in the rules that I was that I was told to follow. You know, the call to adventure to me was, hey, you're not happy and you should leave your job. Whoa, 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 whoa. I've been here for 20 years and I got a career. I got build, I got insurance. I got, you know, profit sharing and all this shit. No, 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 no. But your call to adventure is telling you something different. So that refusal for me lasted almost 15 years for that specific part of my life. And, and so, you know, when we have this, this life that we've set up and we've figured out, quote unquote, you know, I'm playing by the quote unquote rules, you know, I understand that the rules don't work for everybody, but I've figured out how it works for me. So I'm pushing forward. And then you get this call that takes you completely out of that understanding that you have that scares the crap out of you. And so a lot of times we just end up living in that box because that's what we know. And we keep refusing that call to adventure. You know, so I don't know how that lands with you. I, you know, in, in thinking about our interview, I, I thought back to the story you shared in our first talk about how you loved surfing. Just you were surfing for a long time. You're like, yeah, I'll get a job and got a job as a bag boy, right? And you're like, ah, I'll do yeah. that and I go surf, right? How long did that call to adventure for you to pursue teaching and that that developing your career so that you can hold space for all these different humans now and share this beautiful knowledge? that is your part of your hero's journey, you know, how long did it take for, you know, for you to understand that about yourself, you know? So how many times are we just pushing these things away from us? Yeah, it's, it's such a personal question. That's why I love that it's called the hero's journey and we all have our own timelines. Mm. You know, it's a funny thing. You do, you, you, you don't have forever. And, and that starts to gnaw on you and start to gnaw on me in my mid twenties. Cause I was just kind of waiting for my life to start. Yeah. And it was easy for me to do that. Cause I was living in a really beautiful place in Santa Barbara. 
And because I was, I had a, you know, halfway decent part-time job, I had enough money to live on. And I had my surfboard and my guitar and my friends. And, you know, there was distractions aplenty and, and you're young and, you know, you're in your twenties and you're kind of invulnerable. And so it's like, why would I change anything? You know, just sort of that, that what Kierkegaard calls the aesthetic life. Yeah. I just, it was all about enjoyment, you know, um, and, and doing whatever we felt like doing. And, and there, there was a, there was a beauty and we thought we were free. Um, and in some ways we were, and, and, uh, then from deep inside this, this still quiet voice starts saying, is this all there is? Is this all you're going to do is, you know, smoke a bowl and go walk on the beach. I mean, that's, a, that's a nice couple of hours, but is that a life? Right. right. <laughs> you know? And it's like, it, it, and I started, it just started gnawing on me and, and I want to, to be clear that I wasn't just feeling the need to conform to somebody else's program, but also, uh, and discerning as best as I could in a kind of intuitive way, what is my authentic um, role? Not that there isn't just one authentic role, but where might my life really start to sizzle? Mm. And and that came from kind of nobody could explain that to me. You know, you just have to kind of feel your way into what makes you uh, sizzle with zeal and enthusiasm. And then that's, that's the message from your soul. You know, Campbell's famous line of, uh, that is when he, when his students came to see him, he was a professor of mythology and literature at Sarah Lawrence college for like 32 years. And his students would come to see him and say, what should I do with my life? And he would just say, follow your bliss. Yeah. And, and bliss is not the same as pleasure or even happiness. Bliss is his translation of the Sanskrit ananda. And ananda is that, that depth, joy and satisfaction and aliveness that arises when you are living in accord with your authentic essential nature. Uh, and I'll let people define that however they want. But me, it had to do with forgetting about my fear a little bit and and trusting you know what the religious people call faith yeah you know trusting that i was going to be okay if i stepped into this unknown thing and by the way feeling fear at this first stage of the hero's journey the call to adventure is a very rational response right <laughs> because you're about to go through something that is going to destroy many parts of who you think you are Stuff is going to slough off, get burned away. It's going to hurt. But that's what growth always feels like. And growth always entails the destruction of earlier forms as new forms are born. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be frightening. Yeah. I think, you know, there's, there's a thing that kind of came up when I was reading about this and, um, you know, I, I like the ideas. I don't, I don't have a lot of beliefs. So I just try to have ideas and kind of, you mm -hmm. know, funnel ideas and stuff, but I really appreciate the idea of reincarnation and mm. I've, uh, you know, that, that kind of thought popped up as I was reading through, especially this first part is you know, the, the idea of playing it safe and not taking chances and, you know, playing by the rules and, uh, you know, I read a, a story a while back about reincarnation and um, uh, monks from, you know, thousands of years ago that would have the, the, the ascetics, right? You know, they would, um, you know, not speak for this entire lifetime or not involve themselves in sexual pleasure. 
But they did that knowing that, not knowing, quote unquote, this understanding that there was going to be another life after this. And in that next life, your speech was going to be so strong because you abstained from speech in this life. So that next life, the speech is going to be one of your superpowers. You're going to be able to convince the world. You're going to be able to understand and be able to articulate all these beautiful points because you... You, you took that chance in this previous life. And so, uh, you know, it, it, yeah. and, and even back, you know, our, our, our more, I guess, what we call standard religions, like if you look at the Rosicrucians, there, there was a strong belief in reincarnation in the Rosicrucians, yeah. in which with predates like Christianity and Catholicism and things like that. And so, you know, even some of the more structured religions that we have and that we kind of hang our hats on now that maybe lead the way in, in what we follow as religion now had a very, very rich history of reincarnation and getting other chances and not just getting chances to say like, oh, I fucked up that life. No, it's like you've learned so much in that life that you can't learn all the things. So here's another life that's going to give you different opportunities to learn more things. Right. But if I just have a nine to five job and I just, you know, go through my paces and I don't challenge myself, I don't, you know, work towards something bigger than myself. Am I just living that same life over and over and over and over and over again? Am I actually growing, you know? And so maybe if there was an idea that reincarnation might be more of a realistic thing than this, you know, this pipe dream that, you know, some people have, maybe people would take a little bit more chance in life knowing that they would have another life to come back and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, that, that didn't really work out, right? But then here we go. You're not like you can remember that, but it's just like that deep intuition that we kind of talked about earlier. If you can, if you have that deep belief that you get another chance, not even a chance, but you get another opportunity to approach this, then that intuition that you may be diminishing gets a little bit stronger and then you can keep trying and you can keep trying something different. Take those chances, get out there and do something different. Yeah, no, it's you're you're absolutely right that um what impact does the teaching of reincarnation have? And and I think you just said it really well that it it would liberate us, wouldn't it, from feeling so cautious about taking some risks in this life. What if you knew you had 10,000 more lives? I mean, just, you know, go for it. <laughs> right? Yeah, right? And 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 um, you know, my own thinking about reincarnation maybe is a little different. I I think it's just one of the many beautiful attempts at describing the experience that we have of going through a lot of different lives, even within one life. I mean, you know, the cells in our body only live about seven years, I read somewhere. Right. And and right. so, you know, um we are reborn continually and because we aren't a fixed thing. And, and one of the questions I have about reincarnation doctrines is, you know, who is that you that is getting reincarnated? You know, is there some permanent essential self that, is, that goes to who knows where and then is born in another womb? Hmm. Um, you know, these are unanswerable questions. But, you know, in some schools of Buddhism, there's the idea that reincarnation is kind of ongoing. Right. That that and and to me the hero's journey is an interesting again just uh, a template. Not everybody goes through it exactly the same way or once. I mean, every twenty four hours is a hero's journey. Every career change, every marriage is a hero's journey, etc. So we go through many journeys, and we do them singularly and as groups and as societies. So the hero's journey is just a kind of a form or a template or a typology that is an analytical tool. It's not meant to be a kind of literal uh, map to every single life. 
Yeah. But it's to me, it's a useful tool because in to connect it to this reincarnation idea, you know, when I when I overcome the second substage, when I overcome the refusal of the call and I say yes, uh, that I'm leaving my old life behind. In, in a sense, I'm not that guy anymore. And I have died and I've been reborn now as this new person. And, and 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 then the supernatural aid comes and then you cross the first threshold. And now you're in a realm called the initiation where none of the old rules apply. Mm. All of my old skills are impotent. I am helpless. And then I fall into the, what he calls the belly of the whale, you know, obviously drawn from the biblical story of Jonah going into the fish. This is... This is the union unconscious. I mean, you've gone so deep now yeah. in the Star Wars film, A New Hope. It's the trash compactor on the Death Star. Right. They, they go into the underworld. And uh, that's a classic. And there's always some water. That's a classic union symbol of, of the unconscious. And, and so in what sense do we sort of fall into hopelessness, despair, meaninglessness. And this is a crucial moment in the hero's journey. Yes, you've said yes. Yes, there are supernatural aids around you. Nature itself is kind of coming to your aid. Um, but then come the road of trials and all those difficult things. And 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 to me, you know, you're the hero is constantly being killed right. and reborn, whether whether literally, you know, um, the end of season two of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, she goes into the underworld and she's killed. Right. Cliffhanger all summer waiting for the fall, the, 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 the beginning of season three. And of course, she comes back to life because you, you got to do that. There's always when there's a death, there's you can count on it. There is a resurrection. Definitely. And, and so that's symbolic, again, of this sort of recycling and, and second chancing that as as everything that I think is essential about me is ripped away and proven to be non-essential, the question is, well, hey, well who the hell am I right. without all those old masks and structures and uh, and and societal assignments? Yep. There's a there's a quote in the uh, I'm not sure if it came from you in your your series or if I read it through the, the history I was reading, but basically it paraphrases to, you know, when you say yes, the universe conspires to help you. And that help doesn't always come in the form of like, oh, you need money, here's money. Or you need a job, here's a job. It's like, oh, you need to learn a lesson? Here's your opportunity to learn that lesson. Here's your challenge. Are you going to overcome that challenge? And, you know, when we say yes to the thing that is gnawing at us, that that's speaking deeply to us, and we finally hear it and we say, okay, yes, I will take this journey. For myself, I can just say that, you know, subconsciously, uh, I thought it all would work out. Be like, cool. Okay, I heard the voice. I feel the calling. I'm going to say yes. Everything's going to work out great. Yes, it will. But that greatness comes from the lessons that you learn about yourself. And like you said, that destroying of self and the rebuilding of self, that constant regeneration of, you know, shedding ideas, gaining new ideas, seeing how those new ideas match with you, and then maybe fixing them to where they really work with you. And so it doesn't become this, this blueprint that works for me, that works for Peter, that works for my fiance. You know, this is Peter's hero's journey that's going to be very unique to you. Yes, you might have similar stories or characters that share with another human, but that's still your journey to follow. And so listening to and finding your way to work through these seeming um, like downtrodden moments, these moments of woe, these moments of depressiveness, these moments of anxiety, where is that next thing going to come from? 
you know, one of the most he- recent hero's journeys I've, I've encountered on myself was leaving corporate life and starting my own business in a healing aspect, which is not a big moneymaker. It doesn't have insurance because I pay myself, right? It doesn't have a 401k, you know, all this stuff that doesn't have. But again, like I said earlier, those are those that, that box that I was told I need to follow the rules in. And this is just a different box that is seemingly a little scarier to, man- uh, to maneuver around because it doesn't follow what everybody else is doing. But there's also a little bit of freedom that comes from that. But it, it took me a while to get my own anxiety in check to appreciate the freedom I created because I kept understanding like that, that, that gnawing head in the back of me, you know, where's your growth plan? What's your profit? What's your ROI? What's your, where's your P&L statements? All these acronyms that we know from life. It's like, shove those away. Right, they have their place, and I'll find my place to have that business structure and what I'm what I'm building. But it doesn't need to drive the boat. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that is a hero's journey. <laughs> leaving <laughs> leaving the safety of the system, right? All those Pink Floyd albums we memorized. Mm-hmm. You know, welcome my son to the machine, oh, and God. you know, we were we 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 vowed as every teenage generation does to not turn into a bunch of boring old minivan driving. 40 year olds like yeah. our parents and that, and now here we are <laughs> envying their stability right and, and 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 every generation does this right you swear you're going to march to this to the sound of your own drum and all that thorough stuff and it's really great you know uh, what what's that line from Walden that that most men live lives of quiet desperation mm. and 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 we vowed not to be those people and and so that's one of the that's the people who don't people who fail at the second stage. In, in other words, they refuse the call. Yeah, I'm yeah. choosing safety. I'm choosing uh, um, conformity. Um, that that's one of the pieces of this. Uh, but you know, as we go through this, we realize that the enemy is really within us. You know yeah. that 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 it's not some system that's trying to destroy us. It's our own fear. Uh, and and one of the most compelling of the 17 substages for me is, you know, deep into that middle period, deep into the initiation, the road of trials, there is what Campbell calls the atonement with the father. Mm. And, and this is, um, he's borrowing the Christian concept of atonement, which means uh, generally to be reunited with the source of power in the universe to become at one with. And so in classic Christian theology, it means um, um, getting reconnected to God hmm. and, and it comes after redemption and so on and so on. But leaving that aside, uh, what Campbell means by atonement with the father is that to be successful in your hero's journey, you have to be willing to identify the most powerful thing in your universe and then walk right up to it. And, announce your intention to take its place (laughs) and 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 to either destroy this is either to destroy the king or to take down the the state or slay the dragon uh you know it takes many forms and many stories but you're you're in in the wizard of oz it's it's go get the wicked witch's broom And and you you have to face the most powerful thing in Oz, which is the Wicked Witch of the West, and you have to get her sacred object. You know, uh, the wizard never told them why they had to get the broom. It was a completely useless 
object. Nobody ever did anything with the broom, right. but but they had to go get it. And they had to cultivate the courage to go through the opium fields and the flying monkeys and all that horrible stuff they had to face and then walk up to the witch and then get her broom. And, and it, and then only then could they go back to the, this wizard who was a fake wizard, obviously. And, and then the wizard pinned all these ribbons on. Now you have courage. Now you have intelligence. Now you have a heart. Now you can. And as we understand the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, the Lion, and Dorothy already and always already had all of those qualities in nascent, innate form within them. But only when they faced what Campbell calls the atonement with the Father, only when you have the courage to face that fear again, just as you did when you even started the adventure, this somehow unlocks the, the uh, hidden powers within you. And you now finally fully step into your empowered role. And now you can get the boon or the prize. Uh, and then begins the final third of the, of, of the round. Yeah. Trying to bring. There's a, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the guardians of the galaxy movies that have come out recently, yes. right? The Marvel movies. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, uh, and I, I, I love. Are you kidding? I watch all that stuff. Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. The, 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 <laughs> it's so rich with all of this. Right. And, but I love what wow. I love about the guardians of the galaxy is they actually, to me, they kind of put the trickster or like the Hayoka kind of vibe towards, especially this concept. So look at uh, rocket, the raccoon, right? Yeah. very shenanigan based kind of gruff you know doesn't want any friends you know just kind of like keeps Groot nearby and kind of pushes everybody else away but in all <laughs> of his escape plans there's somebody that needs to get something very important right so when they escape from the jail in the first movie uh, uh, Peter has to get the uh, the leg from one of the inmates right and yeah. everybody else has to get like batteries and all this shit and he's like okay <laughs> Peter's like okay I gotta get this leg and so he goes and finds a guy and he's like kind of talks to the guy. He's like, I kind of just need your leg. And the guy's like, get after This is my damn leg. And so he's like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to take your prosthetic leg from you. And then he brings the leg back to Rocket. Part of the whole plan, hey, I got the leg. I got the batteries. And Rocket's like, oh, you took that guy's leg? You actually did that? <laughs> oh, my God, I can't wait to see his face. What did he look like when you took his leg? So, like, as important as it seemed it needed to be, it was also this big, big shenanigan that was just like, oh, you actually did that? I can't believe you did that. And that that's kind of that reoccurring theme in the movies where he has somebody get something that is not needed. Like, I need that guy's eye. Do you really need his eye? No, I need his eye. It's like, we've been through this before. You don't need his damn eye. You know, so it's, <laughs> it's kind of that funny of like, um, do we need the things? Yes, we need that thing. And then you get the thing and you go through the process of getting the thing just to know that it was just a joke. It's like... You know, this is this is the trickster god motif, right. yeah. another great archetype, and it's really common in Native American mythologies, by the way, hmm. and in in Sub-Saharan African mythologies as well. This idea, not as much, although in Norse mythology you've got Loki, and he's a classic trickster god too. His his sole purpose apparently is just to fuck everything up for right. everybody, and and he just wrecks stuff just because he can. He has no plan. He's not even that self-interested ultimately you know he's just a sower of chaos and so what do these characters mean like the raccoon in in galaxies of the guard uh, guardians of the galaxy um for campbell this is a really useful archetype because and this is his take it reminds us of how silly all god and goddess personifications ultimately are 
they remind us not to take any God concept very seriously, Hmm. that they're all a mask hung on a formless mystery that is beyond concept and beyond understanding. And, and all masks must be finally abandoned, that if you want to understand God, you have to forget everything you, you think you know about God. And so one of the roles of the trickster is just to kind of remind us that the way the universe or reality actually unfolds is fairly chaotic and random and sometimes funny and sometimes tragic, and not everything makes sense, and you better just start being okay with that that sometimes things just go side sideways. And so the trickster God, again, is just the personification of that dynamic of the very fabric of reality itself. So making friends with the trickster, you don't have to like them. Right. They're usually not too likable. Uh, uh, but they, again, I think they help us release our attachments to all God concepts and our acceptance of the fluidity of reality. It's all a dance. It's a dance of energy, of, 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 of molecules, of cells, of selves, of egos. And uh, to kind of uh, go into it all playfully and humbly and get ready to pivot. Yep. Yep. In the, uh, in the, uh, let's say the, uh, the Ramayana and the, uh, the Mahaparata, you know, that reminds me of the Rakshasa. Uh, you know, the beast, right? Where the, these big gnarly rakshasas are huge, they're big, hairy, big teeth, but they can also change their shapes. They can, they can shape shift. And a lot of times they'll show up as a beautiful woman that's trying to, you know, coax um, Arjuna over and say, Hey, look how pretty I am. I want to be your wife. And then, you know, be able to get these boons and all this stuff, you know, but, but by playing that trickster energy, but it's also, you know, it's serving their own purpose, right? It yeah. might not be serving your purpose, but it's serving theirs. And I think that's where the, the hero's journey is it, is it gets bigger in my mind, really starts to kind of be fun and confusing is you look at, you know, we are humans, right? We're living this human hero's journey, but, you know, in the idea of, let's say, um, what we might call demonic energy, right? A demon doesn't really necessarily mean they're out to get you. It's just different energy than what we're used to. It's like it's like what Rumi used to say, you know, in the uh, in the the, the separation between uh, good and bad. There's a field. I'll meet you there, right? And it's that understanding that yeah, there's good. Yeah, there's bad. It's really how you look at it. But there's also something bigger and more beautiful past all that. Let's just go hang out there, right? Let's just go kick it there. And that's, you know, that's that energy that, you know, like where you could say, like, if you believe in that demonic or that that dark energy, that can make you maybe do something that you're not wanting to do, but that follows their path. You opened yourself up to being an energetic being that can help them on their path, necessarily not making it negative for you, positive for them. It's just how you relate to it and how the story that you've now told yourself for that. So it's the, you know, that it's just taking it away from the delineation of really good and bad, light and dark. And how does it feel into you? And I think that's where a lot of this, this really kind of comes back into a realistic, um, you know, into the, the humanness of it is, okay, you've, you've answered your call. You're in your initiation, you're learning things, you're learning things about yourself that you may have not have known how weak you might be because you need to know how strong you are. But through that, through life, we start to create stories. Oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, I'll never get that job. Oh, I'll never get that, that partner in my life. Oh, I'll never have kids or I'll never have money. 
And those stories become something that we just start to believe and we start to follow. And those can be the things that are the biggest deterrents of us following our hero's journey is just how we approach ourselves and how we approach our, our, our abilities or inabilities. You know, so yeah. having these understandings, I think, give us that, that ability to be the witness to say, okay, I feel stuck. This is a, you know, let, let me, let me pull up my hero's journey notes and see what's up with this and say, oh, I'm afraid to answer the call. The first step, I'm afraid to answer the call. What call am I looking for? Oh, shit, I didn't even know I was being called to do something. And one of the reasons people are afraid to answer the call is because they've fallen under the seductive sway of a false narrative that they are responsible solely for everything in their life. Right. That everything is, that if anything good comes to me, it's because I designed it, I rationally understood it, I energetically controlled it. I orchestrated it, I choreographed it, I scripted it, and I am the boss. Mm. And all that has to die. Yeah. Because of course, that is half true. Of course, out of our own intelligence and will and tenacity and vision come a lot of our best choices. But I love that right at the beginning of, of you know, the third of the 17 stages is called the supernatural aid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and sure, uh, I don't think you and I are going to get wizards or magic swords, <laughs> visibility cloaks. You know, Gandalf isn't going to come help us. But as Campbell points out in the book, uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, the supernatural aid is often the entirety of the cosmos. Again, that that I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson who said something like, you know, when you make a decision, the universe conspires on your behalf. And and Campbell writes really beautifully and eloquently in that chapter about the supernatural aid that the whole of nature, once you say the holy word yes and make the decision, the whole of nature comes to your aid. Now, nobody can explain that. Maybe you just see nature as cooperative because of your new consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's always been trying to support you, but you were closed to that idea. And again, if you're a theist, if you're a Christian or Muslim or Jewish, or uh, then you might frame this as, you know, God helping you and all of that. Um, but one can be agnostic or atheist and have the same general sense that, that the cosmos is cooperating uh, with all of us, and especially, it's also trying to kill kill you all the time too. But it's 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 cooperating with you uh, to the extent that you surrender to your own kind of authentic path, and then the transformations can can begin. Yeah. So as we make our way through the uh, that second uh, stage, the initiation, you know, that's usually when we we find the thing we're looking for. Like we 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 get the climax, right? We get the the wow. boon, right? That's it, that they call it, and right. uh, you know, and so that can be you know getting the job. You know, I have a really good friend of mine that's uh, that's been you know, just grinding away as a musician for you know ten plus years, and is finally getting that. He's on tour with Chris Stapleton right now. He's like doing it big, right? And so. You, you've reached that climax of the thing that you've learned, right? The thing you've been pushing yourself for. You receive the the gift that is, you know, given to you for the sacrifices that you've made, you know? But how do you, and then that last stage, how do you take all that back with you, right? So with yeah. my friend as an example, right? How do you, you grind, you're on the road for, you know, six, eight months out of the year. You're playing to, you know, a thousand people. Now you're playing to 10,000 people. You get this this thing that you've been looking for, working for, doing, and then all of a sudden you have to go back to Spokane, Washington and be a dad, be a husband, be, you know, a householder. 
And how does that, how does that ego come back down? How do we integrate that back into the world? So how do you take all the shit that you've just been through that nobody will understand, right? Nobody can understand because they haven't walked in your shoes. There wasn't a, there wasn't a Sam by you. There wasn't a Gollum by you. That's just you. So Mm -hmm. how do you bring that back, integrate it back into your life and then help people to understand that you've changed? That you're not Adam the stoner that used to just you know sell weed and deliver pizzas. Now you're Adam the sound guy that is got a podcast and you're holding space for people in medicine journeys. Like that's a big fucking change for a lot of people that don't know, haven't seen me in twenty plus years. You know. <laughs> exactly. You know it's 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 a it's a it's a great question. It's the central question, and and to, to for me a really great movie that kind of addresses this specific aspect of the hero's journey so powerfully is the old uh, classic. It's a wonderful life. Uh, The old Frank Capra film with Jimmy Stewart, Um, the black and white movie. uh, It's kind of a Christmas movie, uh, but it's really about a guy that tries to kill himself and gets rescued by an angel. (laughs) But if you haven't seen the film, I'll, I I, I won't bore you with the whole plot, but what, Frank Capra and the writers of that film did and what and what Jimmy Stewart portrays so powerfully is an ordinary guy who does not get to answer the call, right? That little town he's in just keeps trapping him, trapping him, trapping him, trapping him. And he has to be in charge of the savings loan. He faces the big monster, um, you know, uh, Potter, the evil bank owner. And, and he loses a bunch of money and he basically thinks that his life is over and he's going to kill himself and he goes to jump in this river to die and the Cla- and, and Clarence the angel comes to rescue him and says you know and they have a little chat and J- Jimmy Stewart the Jimmy Stewart character now he's at the very this is a belly of the whale moment he's at the bottom and he says I wish I'd never been born hmm. and Clarence the angel goes hmm he looks up you know to heaven and he goes okay you were never born and then he takes him on a kind of like Charles Dickens in the, a Christmas Carol takes him on a little journey you know for, for for Scrooge, it was Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. For Jimmy Stewart's character, George Bailey, and It's a Wonderful Life, Clarence takes him through his town, Bedford Falls, if he had never been born. Mm. And now it's called Pottersville. And and and, and so and the, that whole scene takes like nine minutes. It's not a big, big, big long thing, but it's it's a it's a beautiful way the storytellers had of addressing this question. How do you uh, realize the value and beauty of your own life, your own gifts, and your own world, and bring the boon back home and and come back in love with the world, in love with your life. And of course, that's how the movie ends. George Bailey comes back and he realizes the whole town gathers around and throws a few bucks in the kitty and like saves the savings and loan. And, you know, it's a, it's a, that film actually got a lot of criticism from the American Chamber of Commerce when it came out because it was, you know, there was a red scare in the middle of the 20th century. They thought it was kind of a communist message. Oh, interesting. That the evil, the evil banker Potter was evil and, and only the community can gather around and save us. Mm. And, and, he, the the movie ends on a very high note. He's so glad because, of course, the spell is broken. He was born, and he and and he, but now he loves his world. And so that's those last two stages: the master, you know, crossing the return threshold, the master of two worlds, and finally the freedom to live. He's not afraid anymore. Hmm. He understands the real value of community, of family, and 
and of love. He doesn't need to be that rock star on the stage. He doesn't need what he thought he needed. He ha- now is experiencing this bliss of being in both worlds. That In Buddhism, that's the bodhisattva ideal, one foot in nirvana, one foot in the dusty world, one foot in the marketplace. Mm. And, and to not be in the marketplace pining for nirvana, nor to be in nirvana you know, thinking that you're better than the marketplace, but just be in both of those places and going, this is it. This is, this is the bliss field in which we all live out our lives. This is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. And that's, I think that's that, that the importance of that, that last step is finding the way through that journey back. Like, so they went to Mordor, they got to get all the way back to the Shire, right? Whoever's getting back. And that's a long ass journey. So through that journey, it's, it's, it's really long. And, and guess what else had to happen? I mean, you are not going to be able to make it on your own. Mm. There's the, there's the refusal of the return and there's the magic flight, meaning you're going to have to run. A lot of the stories are just about this one scene, right? You grab the prize and like all the Ocean's Eleven movies, every heist movie, every Mission Impossible, you grabbed the thing and now you're running and the bad guys are chasing you for two hours and it's awesome. Right. So that's, and or in Lord of the Rings, you know, Frodo and Sam, they destroy the ring. They collapse, the lava is flowing around them, and Gandalf sends the eagles. That's called the magic flight or the rescue from without, meaning you may end up in jail or in rehab or on the street, and somebody's going to have to come pick your ass up and get you back into your own joy. And and so to what I'm always reminded of is what Buddha called the Sangha. We are none of us doing this alone. There is a community of journeyers around us. It may not be your birth family, mm-hmm. but it, 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 you know, you're going to find your tribe and there's going to be people around you who are going to be that support. And, and that's what gets you back home. You know, we all have our Clarence and we all have our Gandalf and sometimes it's your dog, right? <laughs> you know, oh, whatever it's going to take to remind you that love is a real thing Yep. yep. and and you're worth loving. There's a, what, what comes to mind when you say that immediately is Lieutenant Dan from the Forrest Gump movie, right? right? He went, he did his hero's journey. That man went to Vietnam. He saw some shit. He lost his legs. He did his thing, yes. but he never returned. He was afraid to return back. He didn't think he could integrate until Forrest Gump got him back and said, hey, I love you for who you are, right? And we're going to do this together. You know, and so that that Forrest Gump character was that that flight, right? That mystic flight that brought Lieutenant Dan back into the world and showed them he could be a human again. Oh, that's a good example. I forgot about that. Yeah, one. yeah there's right. a, there's a John Dewey quote that I found when I was looking at this, and it said, uh, "We don't learn from our experiences; we learn from reflecting on our experiences." And that's yeah. what that that walk back is, right? You 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 don't realize how much energy you put into getting that ring into the lava of, you know, blowing up the Death Star, right? You don't realize, because there's adrenaline, there's all this energy. You're like, we're fucking doing things, right? We got a mission. <laughs> it's like there's a there's a book uh, that came out a while back called Tribe, and I can't remember the guy that wrote it, but he talks about how humans find their ways to get together when they need to, right? And one of his examples he talked about was World War II. He said when, during World War II, the psychiatric wards emptied in Europe because it's not that everybody got better, it's that everybody found a purpose, right? And it's like, oh, I don't have time to just think about what's going on in my head. There's people dying out there. I can go do triage. I can go lift boulders off of people. I can go hand out bread, right? So yeah. when you find that purpose and you find that desire, it kind of negates all the other bullshit that's going on inside you and just pushes you out into the world. It's like, nope, I got a mission. We're doing something. 
yeah, I can go push Nazis in the canal. Right. You know? Like sometimes you need to create some crazy fuckers, you know, to take care of business <laughs> and, and especially in a war, you know? So, right. That's an interesting thing. When there's crisis, then, then people suddenly be find, find a place. They find a role to play mm-hmm. that isn't always as easy to find in polite suburban materialistic society. Uh, and, and that's, that's part of that fellowship again. And I, and I, and I just feel like going uh, circling back to one of the first things we started with, which is that, yes, we need that literal fellowship of beings around us, but there's, I think a really fruitful analytical angle to think again about how the fellowship are really externalizations and personifications of aspects of my own psyche. Right. And, and I need to, you know, sometimes I get to be the trickster God. Sometimes I get to be the mercenary. Sometimes I'm the stalwart, supportive Sam. And sometimes I'm Frodo, who is the personification of compassion and kindness and self-sacrifice. And, and those are, those are all needed (laughs) um, stances in, 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 if I'm to be successful in living my best life. Yeah. There's a, a, a article I read recently about depression and, and the default mode network that we have that most humans are, you know, that pattern making machine that our brain does, you know, wake up, brush my teeth, make my bed, you know, do all the things that, that, you know, normally happen in my life. But there's a correlation now that they're finding between an overactive default mode network and depression, because if you can't always do the task that you're used to doing, you're going to feel like you're not living life right. And so if we constantly are in that default mode network of, you know, lather, rinse, repeat, lather, rinse, repeat, you know, all that over again, and then all of a sudden something takes us out of that, it, it can be jarring enough because we're so set in our ways that it creates that depression because we don't feel like we're living the life that we're supposed to be living. I've got it figured out, right? I wake up, I read, I do my thing, and then I sit down for this podcast. If I don't get that reading opportunity, I might be frantic the rest of my day. But giving the, again, like using this as maybe not a blueprint, but just a reference point, you can look and say like, life isn't supposed to be the same every day. And the, 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 the excitement comes from how you approach whatever's going to happen today. You know, like a couple Tuesdays ago, you know, I'm sitting there doing my normal Tuesday stuff. Just got done teaching a class, getting ready for a client, all good. Then all of a sudden I get a call. My daughter did a Superman over her wind, uh, her uh, handlebars on her bike and compound fractured her left arm. Now I have to go to Richland, which is about four hours away from me. So I can sit there with her through surgery and make sure she's okay. So my Tuesday just went from normal Tuesday to, here we fucking go. You're about to drive for four hours, right? And just go comfort your daughter that's in agonizing pain. Um, but you got to have that ability to pivot with that stuff, right? We got to have the ability to pivot with life and to say, you know, yes, my client that I need to sit with is very important to me. Helping that human on their journey is great. The financial income that I'll get from that human is great. All, all things good, right? But at the same time, my daughter needs me right now. And so I can create the space that I need to shuffle things around so that I can be where I'm needed to be, not where I feel like I want to be. This is the consciousness of renunciation, as Hinduism calls it, you know, or Buddhism would might say non-attachment. It's it's one of the hallmarks of wisdom, I think. And that is, um, as Campbell put it, we must let go of the life we have planned in order to live the life that is waiting for us. So go ahead and have your Apollonian organizational plan, but get ready for Dionysus' drunken 
stomping. <laughs> you know, that is just going to come in and wreck it. And and that's the yin and yang. You know, yang is assertion and planning and to-do lists. And yin is openness and, and formlessness and space. And both of those things are absolutely going to balance out in one way, shape, or form. And that's as it should be. <laughs> yes, most definitely. And there, there is a balance to it. And that's, I think, one of the things that this shows me and when I can, I re- when I can be clear-minded enough to reference back to it is that, you know, there might be uh, an uptick, you know, of, of emotions. There might be an uptick of, you know, a volatility in your friend group, right? All of a sudden, somebody might pass away, you know, or somebody might leave or move away, whatever it is. But, you know, and those are sad moments. But that also creates this different types of space in, in these opportunities for you. So having having this and having the understanding, even even just a rough understanding, kind of gives us that freedom that to, to, to be fluid, right? Not to be stoic in our, in the way that we've developed our lives, to be that fluidity, to, 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 to move with the way that the life currents want to push us instead of just and like, maybe, and maybe the whole motif of life being a journey, right. you know, of, of the hero's journey, um, um, solidifies that idea because like when you're on a journey, you don't get to make your bed. You don't get to brush your teeth at the same time. You're never sleeping in the same place two nights in a row. So that narrative right there speaks to us in a kind of primal way that that whatever order we impose in our lives is provisional, it's temporary, conditions are going to shift. And and aging imposes that on you. You know, I, I just turned 65 uh, last month and I'm like, damn, I'm, I'm an old man now, I guess. <laughs> Even though inside you, you swear to God you're 24 your whole life, but um, the the but the mirror doesn't lie, you know, and, and and the body is telling you that things are moving, things are changing, abilities um, are not what they were, and and so you're that's another form of the journey that reminds you you're not in control of everything, you don't get to dictate, mm-hmm. you know, life dictates to you, and our response is. Um, how do we respond to that in a way that is dignified and humble and powerful and loving and um, uh, playful? Yeah. And, you know, I think another, uh, you know, underlying thing of what you just said that really lands with me is embracing each archetype as it comes forth, right? And yeah. so the archetype you just talked about would be the the sage archetype. How to be an elder and what does that even mean? Exactly, you know, and I think that's one of the things that a lot of us, a lot of our generations are kind of have been missing for the past couple of decades is that we've been on this, again, Western kind of culture of be young, look young, act young, feel young. And when we do all those things, that's great. You know, feel good about yourself, right? And whatever that means to you. But sure. if we're pushing the idea of young, the idea of young is is not wise, right? There's not a wisdom that comes with youngness. There's an arrogance that comes with youngness, right? Because, you know, if you break down the wisdom word, you have to be dumb to be wise, right? You have to understand <laughs> your ignorance to understand how the wisdom that's out there. And if we keep skirting that, then we have this whole generation of people that aren't stepping into their sage or their crone phases and not imparting that wisdom down to the people that actually need it. And so that, you know, and if you really do look at that from an overarching view, you can see a lot of culturally starved humans that feel like they're doing life right, but also feel lost as shit because they don't understand the wisdom that has been learned because it's not being imparted down to them. So I think, you know, when we find and we embrace like, uh, yes, I'm getting older, I got wrinkles, my hairline's receding, whatever it is for you, right? Sagginess, all this stuff. 
but those are all physical things. Like the, the, the amount of wisdom, the nurturing of the soul, like one of the things with the, with the sage or the crone phase for, for the feminine is you reach that point of postmenopausal so that you're not just concerned about your your family, right? It's not yeah. just your bloodline. Now you take that care that you have and you embark it impart it on the entire village. So you can be the mother of the village and you can impart that love and that wisdom for everybody, not just your own bloodline, because now your bloodline is sustained, right? They're old enough now, they can fend for themselves, they can create their own families. And so if we're not giving that 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 motherly, fatherly, overarching love to the village and to the community with the wisdom that goes with that... Again, that's where we have you know, culturally starved and kind of lost, you know, civilization of people that just kind of just are just doing the best they can, which I guess we all are. But there could be some guidance that I think is is, is being shortchanged. Sure. It, there's a fascinating sort of cultural anthropology, psychology, sociology angle to all of that. What, how do we value people of different generations? And, and, and that is, that's a rich sub- subject for sure. That whole crone and and sage archetype again is a powerful one, as uh, so many of us are moving into that those later years of our lives. And and you're right, it's it's the storytellers help us. You know, they always provide for us the 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 often overlooked power of the crone. You know, what my uh, my uh, wife. And I talk about this a lot that that when she moved into her 50s and 60s, she noticed something. And a lot of women will nod when they hear me say this, which is um, she became invisible. That that she was no longer like the object of 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 the male gaze, you know, that sometimes leering eye in the grocery store or in the office um, that she found that she could if 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 she were a professional shoplifter, she could have gotten away with a lot. Because people didn't even see her going by, right? Right. And and so, what if invisibility is kind of okay? <laughs> it's kind of a superpower. I'm like, that sounds pretty awesome, actually. Uh-huh. To not a a to not be you know to not have your body uh, uh, judged by the eyes of strangers to some meaningless cultural norm of shape and size. That's a new kind of freedom to be free of that nonsense. And then, secondly, to kind of. Um, to the 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 ability to move through the world um without attracting so much attention and and that's not the most important thing about the crone years but it's just one of the many adjustments that you need to internally adjust to mm. and realize this isn't a, a this isn't necessarily a disappointment maybe i could reframe this as a kind of uh, asset yeah there's a there's a book written in the 90s called the fifth sacred thing um it's a star 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 World, I can't remember her name, but it's Starhawk. That's her name, Starhawk. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> I know that. Great book. It was actually ended up being a trilogy. Uh, but one of the characters, the reoccurring characters, is this uh, elderly woman, Maya Greenwood, that's in that crone phase. And so, you know, long story short, within the book, uh, you know, world gets crazy, empire takes over, there's there's rebellions and all this stuff. And what Maya Greenwood talks about was actually exactly what you just said. As she entered her crone phase, she went from being this rebel rouser, you know, like, you know, it, you know, doing all the, the shit that she did in the 60s and 70s to mm-hmm. when the when the uh, the uprise happened in the 2020s, that's when this book takes place. You know, she's in her senior years, but she was able to start the 
the the rebellion because nobody suspected four old women to go out there with pickaxes and start planting fucking trees in the middle of a goddamn street. Right? Awesome. But you have these four, you know, sixty plus women that went out there with pickaxes, un, you know, disarming and just started hacking up the concrete. And so, yeah, there is that invisibility that kind of comes with that. And if you can, yes, you can say, oh, now I'm invisible. Nobody notices me, but that could also be one of those superpowers, you know, one of the great, one of the greatest gifts of, 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 of any philosophical study. And, and even more specifically, what are, what we're talking about today, the hero's journey is that it facilitates our reframing of the meaning of all of these keywords. What is beauty? What is power? What is, truth hmm. what is justice what is necessary what is unnecessary it's delightful to feel the 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 definitions of those things shifting within us hmm. as we let go of our old definitions of those terms and begin to see them in new and more vibrant ways it's very exciting definitely that you know last kind of little tangent I'll hit up before we we part here is uh you know that reminds me of the the book I can't remember the guy that wrote it but there was a book written in the 80s called finite and infinite games and it basically mm -hmm. talks about how in this world right now we're living a finite game you know so theoretically for me to have money means somebody doesn't have money right and so if you look at our our, our structure in the world right now the, I think the the 85 richest people in the world have more money than the lower half of the world right so if you take eight yes. uh, let's say four and a half billion people, have less money than 85 people combined, which yeah. that, that distribution of funds is crazy, right? And so it sound sustainable, does it? Just insane, right? <laughs> and that's that's that finite game, right? So for for Bill Gates to win, somebody has to lose, right? And so if we can readjust to your point, if we can readjust our our standards and our definitions of success of all these different things that we've just kind of hung our hats on, we can we can take, you know, business growth from a 12% year over year kind of idea of success to two percent. Because you're still making money. You're still better than you were last year, right? Doesn't have to be 12%, can be 2%, could be flat. Could you just pay all your bills? You made money, uh, you take you take care of your staff, everybody, the doors are open, the lights are on, you get next year, right? And that's how we play this finite game where we where we can readjust the finality of it to make it more infinite so that if I win, you win. If you take a little bit, I get a little bit too, right? And then we can all keep playing this game instead of where we're at right now. There's this mm -hmm. win-lose matrix that we're, that we're kind of stuck in. You know, I read an article recently about uh, Smog, you know, the dragon in The Hobbit. Mm -hmm. I just rewatched the three Hobbit movies. And, um, and somebody did, I don't know how this happens, but somebody took all those scenes from the film The Hobbit, which show Smog sitting in his big pile of gold coins. Uh -huh. And somebody calculated how much money that was. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 instantly smog became like the fourth richest guy in the world because there were three <laughs> richer than him uh but it kind of puts in the context who the oligarchs who really are we call them billionaires we ought to just rename them hoarders that hmm. uh, they are you know how much money does a dragon need you know what i mean right and it's like that is sort of a hilariously obscene pile of cash that's just sitting there kind of now I know the analogy is not perfect, but it's a fascinating kind of visualization of of the grotesque inequity, and then it makes us really kind of consider the big economic questions and social justice questions. But it also, again, bringing it back to the personal, what is my own relationship with money? Why do I either irrationally crave more when I don't need it, or why do I kind of spend it all and live paycheck to paycheck and push it away 
and refuse to save any money. Right. Uh, and and why do I think I don't deserve to start to create wealth and to start to create prosperity? Whatever definition of that, and and wealth is not a number. It's a sense of wellness and safety and security in the world. It's 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 never a specific number. But that is, that's what characters like Smog kind of, you know, give you an opportunity to reflect on. Yeah. Apart from, you know, solving the economic woes of the world, which is a, a bigger project than I'm up to. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's about my pay grade right now. Answer the call, Peter. Come on, man. Answer the call. <laughs> yeah. I'll leave that to the kids coming up. There you go. I, you know, I got a lot of faith in those kids coming up. Man. That's I, I right. I really do. Sure. I really do. Well, man, I, uh, I've, I've really got a lot out of this conversation. Uh, I really uh, I love your talk. I love the way you approach this, this, uh, subject matter. Um, uh, again, if you, if you need to catch up with Peter, peterbullen.com, check out his YouTube channel and, uh, in yeah. the previous episodes we have and in the future episodes, I'm sure I'm going to have you back. I love, I love the chemistry that we have, my friend, and I really look forward to talking with you again. Thank you so much. It's always a joy to reconnect with you, Adam, and, and all the amazing work that you do and the way you serve. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. You're, you're doing it right. Thank you, man. We'll chat soon, brother. Thank you so much for spending time with Peter and I. Um, please check out the show notes, some ways to get in touch with Peter uh, for his YouTube channel or any of the speaking or music engagements that he has. Also, ways that you can support the show. Obeisance and love. We'll see you next time.